at that moment, I, I realized what had happened. I'm there right at the summit. I dropped down, grabbed a rope that I was attached to. So there's fixed lines. So anchor points with rope that I was attached to. And I remember grabbing that rope and just assessing the situation. You know, I'm at the highest point in the world. I'm blind, completely alone, and nobody's coming to get me. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Out Podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, I'm excited to have on Brian Dickinson. He is the author of Blind Descent, Surviving Alone and Blind on Mount Everest. Guys, this is an incredible story on his ascent to the top of Mount Everest and then experiencing something that, quite frankly, no one else has gone through on the way back down. His story is amazing, but what I really liked is, is that we focused this around a lot of times the student journey and some of the things our students are facing and going through, how his goal setting, how his training, how his faith really has played a role in his goals and his life since. This is one that if you have a teenager, I really strongly recommend that you pass this on. No bad language, nothing but positivity out of Brian. Um, but quite frankly, a lot of teachers are looking for role models, guys that get back to no degree of irony. Before I like recorded this podcast, he was talking to school children uh, in Oregon. So he is certifiably a great person, and his journey and his story is even more incredible. So I'm not going to go on any further. This podcast speaks for itself. So please, if this has brought you value, um, share this one. This one's important to me. Um, this I, I think the discussion on here is so, so relevant. So let's get right to it. Without further ado, Brian Dickinson. Okay, now I'm joined by Brian Dickinson. He is the author of Blind Descent, Surviving Alone and Blind on Mount Everest. Brian, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Don. Okay. Um, what <laughs> I always like the term when you jump out of a perfectly good airplane on parachuting. What mm-hmm. makes somebody want to face death <laughs> and climb up Mount Everest? I'll start off with that question. Yeah, I'll just jump right in. Um, so that's funny, nice analogy, since I used to jump out of helicopters in the Navy, did that for six years as a rescue swimmer. So I can't even back up what makes <laughs> a perfectly good helicopter. Yeah. Um, but for mountaineering, um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think we find this in life, you know, things that you're not accustomed to, you know, they seem crazy. And there's, there's a lot of brave people behind a keyboard that, you know, would be on that side out of a hundred billion people to ever be on this earth, you know, only 4,000 have summited Everest. So I'm not good with math, but it's a small percentage. So if you reverse that, you know, the majority of people wouldn't really get it. So it's, it's something personal for each individual. Um, I don't go into mountaineering thinking I'm going to die. You know, I'm, I'm closer to it. I have years of experience, climbed highest peaks on the seven continents, been around the world. Um, so, you know, I, I go in with a, a clear mind, know that there's things within my control and I, you know, I get up to speed on those. I'm physically fit, mentally, spiritually, um, but I have to respond to things outside of my control. Um, and that's, that's where things get hairy. It's about taking those calculated risks and making good decisions to climb another day. And I think this is like a really obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. Seeing that you did Everest, you probably had to had to have gone over some of the other highest peaks to build up to that, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, I was up on Denali, um, highest peak in North America, 
down in Russia, climbed Mount Elbrus, high peak in Europe, Kilimanjaro. Um, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so we have Mount Rainier in my backyard, and just climbing the the Cascades, soloing lots of mountains. So it's just yeah, years of years of climbing. Yeah, I figured this would be the last, the goal of uh, of mountaineering. Um, so <laughs> obviously, it's in your DNA. You you enjoy these kind of goals. Um, you you also alluded it a little bit, and I want to go back. Uh, your occupation, as it were. And you said jumping out of perfectly good helicopters. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, I was in the U.S. Navy for six years. Um, I was a air rescue swimmer, so basically, you know, air crew doing everything helicopter related, from anti-submarine warfare to aerial gunner, combat search and rescue, and you know, just regular search and rescue. So jumping out of helicopters to retrieve down pilots or whatever it may be, man overboard, as well as overland rescue. Wow. Um, okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, obviously you had some, well, you're going to recant some of the stories, uh, but you decide to go up with a Sherpa and, um, obviously that's when some things went wrong. Please, please let us know what, what happened there. Yeah. I mean, to, to have a perfect day on Everest is, there, there are no perfect days on Everest. Um, so you're always going to run into something. I just happened to run into, you know, a, a very imperfect day. Um, but I'm here to talk, tell you the story. So it ended up well. It's a spoiler alert. Well, uh, actually, before you start that, like, what are the statistics? I know, like, there are, like, how many people don't make it? I, I, I've read several things and, and I forget what the percentage is, but it's, you're literally, because I, like, We've all heard like, oh, you know, some people scaled Mount Everest. It's incredibly, incredibly dangerous, correct? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of um, dangerous areas on Everest for sure. You don't, you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go do it and then go do it. You know, it's, it's a lifetime or it should be a lifetime. And there are, there's a few bad apples out there that, you know, will pay their way to try to get to the top. But then it, you know, puts themselves and others at risk. Uh, for me, I didn't go a, an expensive route. I went independent you know, which is more unusual, you know, usually you go with a, a larger guided group, but I had some Sherpa support and a Sherpa climber, uh, Pasong, who were good friends. And it was just uh, basically the two of us um, heading towards the top. And it takes about a month to acclimate. So that's where you have to climb up and down the mountain to um, basically force your body into these oxygen deprived areas and come back down, rest, and your, your body will actually produce more red blood cells, which carry oxygen, so you can survive higher up. So the whole process takes, you know, a little over a month just to be ready to go for the summit. Yeah, and uh, like, is that base camp one that you acclimate? Yeah, yeah, so you go, just to get to base camp, it's 38 miles on foot, and base camp is at 17,500 feet. Jeez. So just base camp alone is, you know, higher than any, any mountain, 3,000 feet higher than Mount Rainier and Mount Whitney. So it's up there. And from there is when you actually start climbing the mountain and you go up to camp one, touch it, come back down, spend a few days, head back up, maybe bypass one, go to camp two. And then you'll do that, those rotations a few times, get up to camp three. And camp three is halfway up Lhotse Face. Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world. You actually climb straight up an ice wall, camp on the side, just you know, anchored off on the side of the mountain, come back down hang out in base camp, wait for a, you know, five plus day weather window. And then you head up and hope for a, 
hope for good weather and everything works out, make it to the top and head back down. And uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it. Isn't it the, uh, the Kumbu ice falls where you kind of have to go over massive crevices and things of that nature? Yeah. I mean, all the way up to the base of Lhotse, there's some massive crevasses. That's where you see the lighter, the ladders, like five ladders tied together across right. with, you know, your crampons, the spikes on your boots. But yeah. The Kumbu icefall is right out of base camp. So it's your first major obstacle and it's a couple miles of building size blocks of ice that are continually falling. So the route every time changes and there's multiple ladders, like 25 plus aluminum ladders that you're crossing over these, you know, bottomless crevasses. So you want to move pretty efficiently through there, but at altitude, you know, fast isn't a thing. Everything is in slow motion. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. All right. So you're spending over a month there, which I, again, I, I think I just respect that so much because, you know, having, you know, I, I enjoy the genre. I've read uh, several things and, and um, you know, crack hours uh, rendition was, was, I think I brought more people to that genre than I think mm-hmm. it, was, it was, yeah, it was just this, this huge book that everybody kind of uh, enjoyed, but getting that sense of just the daunting task of, like you said, base camp one, a lot of people just can't hang. They think that they can, they're, they're somewhat experienced climbers and just, and how many people get sick and get pneumonia and get, you know, all, all these horrible things that can happen just, just past base one. So you're, you're, you're heading up, things are going pretty well. And then. Yeah. So I had a weather window, um, a song, uh, Sherpa and I were heading up and got to high camp on May 14th. And there was 70 mile an hour winds up higher that day. So one Japanese climber had died up top. Uh, a few people summited, but got down quickly and wet. The wind was going to be a little bit calmer, um, throughout the night, you know, pretty steady. And then, 50 mile an hour gusts later in the day. So in all cases, you get up when the sun is rising, you know, beyond the summit when the sun's rising. So climb all through the night and get down before the wind kicks up. So Pasong and I are, you know, pretty fit, strong climbers. He had uh, two uh, summits already and uh, we, we went for it. And unusual because we were the only two people climbing for the summit from either side, from the north out of Tibet or the south out of Nepal, which is unusual because if there's a weather window, then, you know, more people are in a position to, to summit, but we're just kind of wedged in there. So moved up the mountain, got to about 28,000 feet. And that's when Pasong had to turn back. He, he was having altitude sickness, just not feeling well, not like severe, but he was, he was vomiting. So it was a good decision. Uh, but it's one of those areas in life, those pivotal moments where you, you have that conversation and, you know, you only have the information that's in front of you at the time. And we talked about the weather, weather was good. I was strong, but um, feeling good. And most importantly, how was Pasong? And he assured me he was good. In fact, he said he was going to wait right there. I'd go up and come back down and we both agreed on it. Felt good about the decision and continued moving up. So I continue up. And, you know, you live and die by these decisions. You never know what's going to happen, but you, you hope you can predict the outcome. And I just continued up, made it, you know, past Hillary's step, saw the true summit, those last few steps, you know, made it. And just uh, so much to take in at that moment. It's just, you know, you, how many people have the opportunity to 
not only climb Everest, but to solo the summit, to have it to yourself. You know, according to the Himalayan database, I'm one of two people. And it was totally unplanned. It just, you know, it happened. Took the highest selfie in the world and made a radio call down and, you know, couldn't stick around for too long. And finally had to start heading down and within five, 10 feet, just went completely snow blind. Wow. And describe what, like, what does snow blind mean? So snow blindness is the sun burning of the cornea. So I had a goggle malfunction the day prior. They had cracked and to see exposure, I have blue eyes, so I'm more at risk. As soon as that sun is, you know, exposed, you know, the eyes are exposed, it just basically burns the cornea. And once it happens, it's a snap of fingers. You're, you're blind. And it's not like blind where everything's black. It's blind where everything is white. And you cannot, it's like putting a light bulb within an inch of your face. You just, you can't see anything. It's really painful. And usually it takes about 24 hours to return. And I wouldn't regain my eyesight fully for about a month and a half. Wow. At that moment, I, I realized what had happened. I'm there right at the summit. I dropped down, grabbed a rope that I was attached to. So there's fixed lines. So anchor points with rope that I was attached to. And I remember grabbing that rope and just assessing the situation. And I'm at the highest point in the world. I'm blind, completely alone, and nobody's coming to get me. And a lot of the Navy training came back in, never panic. You know, panic kills. And just, I got up, didn't overthink it, just started moving, just one slow step at a time. So it should have taken me about three hours to get down to high camp. And it ended up taking me seven. So everyone down below thought the worst. I took, took a couple major falls. The rope shock loaded, saved my life. And the whole time down, I just, I felt this presence around me. I just, I never felt alone. It's just this peaceful presence near me. Wow. I didn't think too much about it, but it was just like if you and I are in a room and you close your eyes, you know, I'm still there. It was just this really like just tangible presence, but never thought too much about it other than it was, it was there. It was following me. And wow. So, so let me just get right when you first lost eyesight, did you, were some of the, the lines already there or were you having to kind of scramble around and find them first? No. So on Everest, Himalayan peaks, like different, uh, different high altitude mountains, um, myself, guides, Sherpa, whoever will fix lines. So you'll put anchor points into the mountain and then fix rope. And that's why me as a climber, I can actually solo. Like if those weren't in, set in place in the first place, I wouldn't have went up because I'd have been completely you know, alone and not attached to the mountain. The problem is there's so many ropes from past years that you have to make sure you're clipping into the right rope. Yeah. Otherwise it's a two mile drop on each side of you. <sighs> you're, you're miles in the air and getting down. It's just, I was forced to use my other senses and I'm not normally blind. So I was trying so hard to use my eyes and they just, they would not work. So I was just listening to the clip of the carabiner I was using my hands, which it's tough. It's cold up there. You have gloves and like all this gear on. So it just took so long and there's areas where it's rock. So having metal spikes on my boots, the crampons and, you know, just sliding down and sparking off the, the rocks. Um, so it took a couple major falls where I was just head over heels falling, the rope shock loaded, saved me. And then 
at about the halfway point, 27,500 feet, as I was heading down, that's when I ran out of oxygen. Oh. At that moment, I had, uh, I'd been climbing about 33 hours from the day prior to this point. So just completely wrecked. I'd already lost 20 pounds, black eyes, just completely, completely done. And I, I just reached that point where I could, could not do it on my own anymore. And, and I just, I dropped to my knees at that point and just prayed. Just said, God, I can't do this alone. Please help. And at that moment, just felt energy come over me. It was like, it was like something just lifted me to my feet. And I remember scrambling around with my regulator, trying a, another oxygen bottle that had previously failed. And then I got a positive flow. And I remember just sucking in like five deep breaths of that air and just the life re-entering my body. It like burned, like fire going through my veins. And I just remember not, not overthinking it. Like I had this new life. I had this energy, still couldn't see, and just started rappelling down as fast as I could, which was like a, a slow walk. But, you know, just getting down, efficiently letting gravity take over, making sure I was coming in and out of the anchors. Um, without, you know, releasing and falling. And then eventually a song walked out like the last quarter mile and just hugged me. And he's like, Brian, you alive. And I, I never saw him coming. I just hugged him. And he's like, I'm so sorry I leave you. And I'm like, ah, don't worry about it, dude. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I, every time I read accounts of this and it's just like, it, it's it's such a brave and yet you have to handle your fear. I think that's one thing I liked about the fact that you said I didn't panic. <laughs> There's a part of me, my inner skeptic is like, yeah, right. But obviously you've had training for this. And, and you said, you know, when you panic, that's when you struggle. And so, you know, that, that, that calm kind of took you over, which is incredible. Um, yeah, I'm but not also, saying that panic wasn't trying to creep in. Oh no, I'm that's training. Yeah, training. absolutely. Your training kicked in. I think that's the, that's the impressive part, but it is, I, I can't even fathom all of a sudden being blind and then you're that high up where any misstep is, is a dangerous misstep, but then saying, okay, I'm going to take this through. Cause that like panic builds on panic. Cause I'm thinking, mm -hmm. you know, if I don't get in time, if I don't get down in time too much, that's also a, a death sentence. So mm -hmm. you're, you're up against a lot, you know, forget the misstep, just staying up there too long is, is fatal. Well, um, I knew 99.9%. I was probably going to die. So wow. I, I compartmentalized that and I was going to do everything I could to survive. Wow. Okay. So let me get into the fun part of this. Um, <laughs> this wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> this was nerve wracking. I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to place myself in it. I'm like, I don't, well, I can't place myself in it. I, I don't have the training. I don't have, um, yeah. But I, I, now you have a metaphor of life. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously you're, you're talking about this. I was so happy to hear that uh, right before this podcast, you were talking to some students. We, we live now in a time where, where anxiety and depression are, are really high. Mm -hmm. And it seems like their Mount Everest is them trying to cope in, in, the, in the world. Give me some takeaways on this and how it's affected your life since, and then some takeaways you could look straight at a high school kid and say, all right, I've been here and this is what I took away. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. I'm glad that you're, you're focused on that. Cause I mean, I've, 
I've struggled with anxiety and depression as well. A lot of, a lot of people that have huge goals, you know, you accomplish those and then you come back and, you know, it's something yeah, you have what? to deal with. Yeah. I, so I grew up in a, a really small town you know, in the mountains in Southern Oregon and, you know, it was in the eighties. So we didn't have all the distractions with technology, social media, all this um, stuff that everyone has today. And I, I think in the end, it's, it's really owning who we are because we're all wired differently. No matter what that looks like, it's, it's owning that and not trying to pivot left or right based on what society or other people or bullying or whatever direction you're being pulled because it's, it's identifying those things in life that are causing that anxiety and depression and, and dealing with it, you know, talking to someone, not trying to hold that in, but, but also just owning who you are. I see it all the time. Like my wife's a, a counselor, so we're, we're right in the thick of it. But and we'll do um, you know marriage counseling and talk to schools and different things about stuff like this. And for me personally, I've always been really driven and overachiever. And I think it's that goal setting is what brings me above the. Well, I mean, it also causes anxiety. But from a, a depressive state. If I'm just flailing in life, not doing anything, have no goals, man, I'm miserable. And a lot of people ask, well, how, how does your wife and family, how they let you do these things? It's because my wife knows who I am. She knows who she married. And if she was to change that in any way, you know, you always change together as you grow together. But if she was to not allow me to do the things that make me who I am, you know, I would, I would fall into a major depression. Well, yeah, it wouldn't be a marriage then. It'd be her wanting to create a different person. Mm-hmm. So mm, I, I, I love that. I, I've got a class built on literally short, medium, and stretch goals mm-hmm. and, and knowing the differences. But sometimes the hardest thing, though, is, is, is the student, well, heck, student, adults included. It's the goal setting that sometimes causes the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you have none, like I, I see these two extremes, right? Extreme one, you have no goals. Every day is the same. Everything sucks. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on Instagram and realize that I don't have those abs, that I'm not in Maui, and that my life is totally lame, right? Mm-hmm. And then extreme two is, they, you know, and, and I like some of these people, but that are like the, the hustle and the grind um, over infatuation where I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they'll never live those expectations somewhere in the middle is, is where we're looking at, mm-hmm. but I, I've had more trouble and I've seen more things be on the other extreme as then like why even set goals? Like it causes, like, it's almost a reminder that they're not achieving. So they're not going to set a goal because mm-hmm. it'll make them to think about that. How, how would you, and because I know you're wired a totally different way, but if you were helping out a friend, what are some really basic steps for you to set some accomplishable goals? Mm-hmm. And I think you nailed it right there. It's, it's accomplishing those goals. I think the hardest time, hardest part of anything is getting there. Like going for, for me, going for a hike. It, it's so easy to just hang out around the house and, you know, that's not me, but anytime I get out there and I'm actually there, I took the effort to actually get there. Like my, my whole day is just reshaped in a positive manner. But, you know, I could have a goal to, you know, climb Denali for a fourth time. If I'm not working towards that in small chunks, Denali is a big mountain. I've climbed it three times, snowboarded once, 
still have never stood on top. You know, whether different conditions have pushed me back. That's a goal that I have not achieved if you look at it from that perspective. But I've come back and I've survived it three different times. You know, I'm alive, live to climb another day. Um, you know, from that perspective, I've had to kind of rewire my thinking and be okay with that. So sometimes it's okay to fail at goals as long as you're working towards them. So I think it's reframing it sometimes, changing the mindset that of what is success. Most mountaineers will tell you success is not standing on top of a mountain. Success is getting back safely with your whole party. Yeah. Whether that's to base camp and back, whether that's to the summit and back. Obviously, you have to have that goal of getting mm. to the summit. But mm. that's where summit fever gets in and you know takes over and people die because they're achieving this thing which will never bring happiness. Um you you had mentioned earlier you 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 sometimes in the past had suffered from anxiety yourself was one of the things you had to deal with was the what's next i mean here you set you set a goal that is so freaking unaccomplishable that like it borderline unattainable not only did you achieve it but you on the descent were blind mm-hmm. what's next oh definitely <laughs> definitely not so i get asked that a lot and it's it's not trying to um, top what I've already done. And I think if, I think a lot of people get into that mode where I've done this, now I got to go yeah. higher. I got to do something more. <laughs> On your descent down, you have to have snow blindness again and wear ice skates. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's, it's a tough thing and it's, it's a battle and we learn more, you know, through experience as we're going through life. And when we're talking to, you know, a school, you know, depending on what the grade, I mean, any grade, I guess, it's tough because they have just a small glimpse of life at this point, but they know everything. All right. They're totally connected <laughs> and they have that attitude. Yeah. It's, it's over time that, okay, they're going to start slowing down and realize so many things of these things don't matter. For me, my faith is, is really important. I learned a while back to release things that were burdening me. I was trying to take on too much or didn't feel like um, I was, my issues were adequate, you know, so I was just going to try to take that on or take, take on other people's issues. Um, And it's just releasing that and just, you know, being at peace in all that we do. The obvious thing, the other part of that is, is like you, we were both alluding to like the social media uh, constant comparison um, I'm assuming that's also kind of where your, your faith has kicked in that you're not necessarily comparing yourself to anybody. You're taking your own journey, correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone's brave behind a keyboard. So it's, it's interesting, especially when you have a book out there, especially when you've climbed Everest and you have faith and, you know, everything else is, it's an opportunity to seek and destroy, try to take down uh, Brian Dickinson. And that's fine because it's it's a reflection of the person doing it. Um, when you can just, you know, not read the reviews and not care about stuff like that and, you know, have to rope my mom in not to read Amazon reviews. <laughs> you know, upset. Like, mom, come on. You know. No, I, it's funny. I just, one of my, actually even saying this, I'll some people get mad, but um, one of my more intriguing people that I, I so desperately want to interview, but I, I listened to him, uh, is Jordan Peterson. And he was just on not too long ago on Joe Rogan. And he's like, I can't read comments anymore because he is so misquoted. And the guys, mm-hmm. you know, 
his book has exploded and all of a sudden everybody kind of wants a piece of him. But yeah, like people tearing away at some of his accomplishments and success, you're like, you know, he admits it can't not affect you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dr. Drew said the same thing. It's it's amazing because you you look at these people and it's like, well, it's not going to affect them. But guess what? We're all real. If you read that stuff, you know, and it just kind of drills in, it's like, oh my gosh, why do I care what a, you know, eight-year-old (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny you say that. It's so funny you say because I think she was around eight or nine. My my oldest daughter back then, she hates when I recant the story because she's like, "Come on, Dad." She had a YouTube channel, um, and the best thing in the world happened for her in the the sense that she got a couple of uh, trolls, and it was something you know, it, it was usually something pretty petty, and um, you know, or something some basically was like, "This video sucks." Mm-hmm. And, and she was upset by it. I'm like, well, do you think it sucks? And she's like, well, I, I like it. I'm like, okay, do me a favor. Click on the person's profile that said that. And she did. And I'm like, tell me how many videos they've done. Uh, there's none. Okay. So a person that's never produced a video said that your video sucks. What do you think about that? Well, who are they going to criticize? <laughs> I'm like, exactly. And, and then every now and then there'd be a comment. She had one comment that's like, your lighting is bad. And I'm like, well, is it? She's like, I, I guess it could be better. I'm like, what are you going to do next time? I guess I'll put a lamp in front of my littlest, but she did littlest pet shop reenactments. She, <laughs> she'd write up little scripts for, like, it was like a school setting and she'd get embarrassed when talking about this, but she'd do really cool littlest pet shop stuff. And so there, the one troll was helpful. And your lighting is bad, so she fixed it. And the other ones, a couple of them were like, this is stupid. Okay, well, you've never produced a video, so off with you. And I really enjoyed that it built some resilience and that, you know, there's people out there that they want to take you down a notch, but if they have no credibility, you're just going to have to let it go. And yeah, I'm sure it probably bothered her a little bit, but man, it it, it was a great lesson. And, it really is, because we have a choice how we respond to things. And yeah. sometimes you, we may feel those choices are out of our control because they're triggering, you know, deeper down issues that we may need to work through. But I think when you simplify it to that, like you did with your daughter, it's like you have a choice. You can either, you know, look at their credibility. They have none yeah. or they're dead to you. Right. And then the other, oh, yeah, you're right. I could actually add some more light. So we're all yeah. good one thing I just that came across and as I was perusing through your book and then, you know, reading some of your tweets and, and then getting to to do some background on you is, is that this is a journey, like you said, it's not taken alone. And um, being in education, you have to watch yourself on separation of church and state. But um, obviously I'm picking up what you're putting down. And I enjoyed that um, because I, I think that no matter what your faith is, um, it was, it was awesome to see that a person that could beat his chest and say, I beat death or I did it on my own. You were acknowledging that you were on the shoulders of both a spiritual giant and, and a physical giant with your Sherpa on the way up and that you weren't alone, that you took this journey with others. And I, I really, really kind of, you know, I, I admire that humbleness within bravery. Um, but then also you being an example to other students, uh, that you're, and, and whether they're students of life or they're, or whether they're in middle school, high school, whatever. Um, but I, I appreciated the journey since the journey. I, I really do. No, you're, uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, it's nice, humbling feedback, I guess. You know, it's just one of those things. And I've, I've, I forget who I was talking to, and maybe it was uh, earlier 
with the kids that I was talking to on a Skype. Um, you know, it's, it's just one of those points in my life. It was the first point in my life, I think, that I've acknowledged in where I couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. And I, I had tried so long. And I think it would just be sinful to try to take credit after the fact. And I've, I've lost friends and you know, people over it because they're so hell-bent that, no, you were in the Navy and you, you were strong and you did all this. I'm like, you weren't there. I'm like, I, I swear I tried to do it on my own, but yeah. it yeah. didn't work. I reached a point I could not, and I'm here because of it. That and I just want to bring up, and I'm hoping you do get flooded with requests if you're not already, but I, I again, I said at the top of the show, I like the fact that before we did this podcast, you were, you were talking to a classroom. A decent amount of the subscribers to this show are teachers. So I guess now, like, tell them where they can find you. I recommend that, you know, your students take a look at this book. And the fact that an author is accessible uh, via Skype and Zoom and all these other things, I just, yeah, I really want to hold that up. So tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, well, I mean, you can Google me, Brian Dickinson, or briandickinson.net is my website. So I'm on every flavor of social media. And my handle is Brian C. Dickinson. And my book is Blind Descent. All right, there you go. Well, again, for all those teachers out there listening, this is an author that gets back and uh, and and talks to to kids, which is just near and dear to my heart. So, Brian A, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being a, a continued example of of taking the journey, and not alone. I think that's awesome. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> from the bottom of my heart, just being that living example, being that witness of, of, you know, taking the walk and not doing it alone is, is really inspiring. I want to thank you. Oh, thanks so much, John. Appreciate it.